Hi everyone, this is Van Cochran, Vineyard Northwest. My message today is about the Christian worldview and the unseen realm that is taught in the Christian worldview and specifically how understanding and seeing this unseen realm can fill the heart of a believer with courage. I hope the message blesses you. Um, wow, what an exciting time to be alive, don't you think? These were exciting days. And I was just sitting here as I was thinking, as I was these last couple of moments thinking how much I missed the room being full of people and uh, how much I missed that. But I'm really thankful for the people that are here uh, to help put on this service. And we're really thankful for all of you out there uh, taking part. But it is an exciting season. And you might say, are you crazy? This is a hard time. You know, we're, we're lonely, we're, people are getting sick and dying. But I, I want to ask you this, have you ever watched a movie about good times, just, and, and there was peace in the land, and that was it? Now, movies are always about problem times, and it's during hard times and during seasons of stress and trial that heroes are made. And so, it's how we respond to it that is the key thing. And as, as we look at these times that we're in right now, and we ask... How am I responding? How am I doing? Am I going to really live as our declaration we just read with courage and boldness because I know God and I know who He is and I know who I am in Him? Or, or am I going to give in to fear? And it's, there's a difference between periodically being afraid and giving in to fear. And, and I want to talk about that today. And really what I want to do is leave you all with a greater sense of how to walk in courage. Because uh, fear is uh, a horrible thing. Uh, a, an Irish physician, I made reference to this last week in a couple things I said from the front. But uh, this Irish physician, Dr. Murray, said, A fear epidemic can have far worse consequences when complicated by issues of race, privilege, and language. And he was saying far worse consequences than any um, health pandemic or epidemic. And so what we all need to do as, as we're seeing things open up in our nation and as you know, we're planning to reopen as a church, we need to ask ourselves, am I going to give in to fear or, or not? And fear is, is a powerful force, and it is something that can consume our lives. But here's the thing for us. We have Jesus with us. We don't know the future. None of us do. And we won't know the full extent of everything we've gone through for years. But we do know this, whatever happens, Jesus is with us. And wh wh whatever happens in my life, in your life, I'm going to face it with Jesus. There are a couple of powerful verses in Isaiah I want to share with you. First, Isaiah 46 and verse 4. This is for all of us that might just be concerned about our own lives. You might be thinking about the economy and your retirement or, or how you're going to make it. It's Isaiah 46, verses 3 and 4. Here's what God says, and this promise applies to us today. We know this because in 2 Corinthians 1, the Bible says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, and they're all for us today. So it says this, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, from birth, from the very womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I'll carry you. 
I've done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. So you can be assured, whatever's happening in the stock market, whatever's happening in the economy, God's with you. You're going to face that with Jesus. He's going to carry you. Uh, a little while later in Isaiah, in chapter 59 and verse 21, uh, you know, a lot of us would just say, well, hey, I'm not worried about myself. I'm worried about my kids or my grandchildren. And, and, I, you know, and, I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm a little bit fearful for them. What type of a world are they going to face? Well, here's another great promise. Isaiah 59, 21 says, as for me, this is my covenant with them. And we can say this is, this is his covenant with us, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. And so you can be assured that whatever your grandchildren or whatever your great-grandchildren or whatever your children are going to face, Jesus is going to be with them. And the very same spirit that you are walking with today is going to be on them and in them. And so our main goal should be to prepare them to face the future with Jesus. And, and that comes down to us facing the future with Jesus. So, as I said, this, this whole thing, the, these, these truths that I just read, they help to shape our worldview. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you know, uh, two weeks ago, Wilson gave a great message on worldview, and two messages in a row, in fact. And he took us through the whole Bible and showed us the thread of the kingdom through the entire Bible and how that should impact our view of life and our view of the world. And then last week, Micah, um, our, our staff prophet, shared about seeing angels and, and the angelic realm and how involved and engaged they are in our lives. And how even when we pray and we're praying with God's heart, angels pick that up and they they go out and they fulfill God's heart because we've prayed in line with what God wants and with what God desires. And so this idea of worldview is though a very important thing for us to grasp. And if I was going to define it, I'd define it this way. A worldview is like an invisible filter in our minds, in our brains. It's an invisible filter that determines what we think about reality. It's invisible. We don't even know it's there, but it determines what we think about reality, and therefore, it, uh, it determines what is normal and reasonable in our eyes, and therefore, it controls our actions in most situations, our worldview does. And so, Wilson used the illustration of glasses, that worldview is like looking through glasses, and actually, I forget that I have glasses on. You, you, you forget you have them on. And a worldview is something that is uh, below the, the conscious thinking level as well. But it's like uh, you have glass sunglasses that are real dark, very dark, well shaded. And so that person goes out and they look around and they're going to have a certain view of things. Another person has sunglasses that are more green or gray. And that's going to shade what they see in a different way. Or you've seen those, uh, those uh, sunglasses advertised that allow you to see fish below the surface of the water. I can't remember what they're called. But they, they give you another view of life. And, and so worldview is just like that. And, and I thought of an illustration of worldview. My first time in uh, Africa, in Mozambique, I met this um, uh, young woman that was working there, she, she worked specifically with uh, infants that were born with AIDS. 
And she told me a story about these two young children. I think the little girl was seven and the little boy was two. And their parents had been killed in a car accident. Now, those two children had family members. They had aunts and uncles around. And there were lots of other people around that knew them that could have taken them in. But nobody did. They ended up living in a field facing just all kinds of abuse and degradation because there was no one there to protect them. And you say, well, why not? Why? Well, the worldview in that culture was a supernatural worldview, but it was a wrong supernatural worldview. They believed in evil spirits and in curses, and they believed that these parents were cursed, and that's why they died in the car accident, and that that curse was resting on the children. And if they took those children into their home, they would be tasting, taking that curse into their home. And further, the parents might get jealous and come back and haunt them because they were raising their children. And so that, that's a mindset that to them was as reasonable as if you, have some, you, you know someone who has Ebola, and, and they're in a horrible state of outbreak of Ebola, and you're saying, well, I'm not going to take them into my home because all my kids will die if I, if I welcome them into my home. But in their mindset, in their, in their view of the world, in their view of the supernatural, this, that decision not to take these children in was just a logical, reasonable decision. Now, the, I was hearing this from a Christian nurse who had a different worldview. She had a supernatural worldview, but her worldview included the fact that God is good. And God loves us, and that we are to show the love of God, and we are to be merciful. And even if she would die because of it, the right thing to do would be to take these children in. And she would have been afraid to die because she knew in her worldview there's life after death. And so you see two different worldviews uh, will bring about two radically different responses to situations of life. Now, for our purposes today, I want to just identify two different worldviews that are pretty prevalent in our culture today, okay? Uh, that you, you can find a number of different worldviews. If you look it up online, you'll, you'll find some people say there are four, some people say there are seven, nine, whatever. I'm just going to look at two here. And the first one is Christian theism. And Christian theism is different than animistic theism, which is what the, the, we were talking about a moment ago in that illustration. In Christian theism, there's the belief that there is an unseen realm, which Wilson talked about, which Micah alerted us to even more with his talk on angels. There is an unseen realm inhabited by God. And the creatures, the beings that he created to live and exist in that unseen realm. Did you know the Bible talks about a divine council? God has a divine council in the unseen realm. The Bible talks about beings there called the sons of God. They're the sons of God that exist in the unseen realm. And then there are varieties of angels, seraphim and others that exist in the unseen realm. So we believe that there's a God in the unseen realm who created all these beings to live in the unseen realm. But then God also created this planet. He created the earth, the seen realm, the thing that we can touch and taste. And he created us human beings in his image to live in this seen realm. Now, this God as well is good and benevolent and kind, and he wants relationship with us. In fact, he will do anything to have relationship with us, even up to the point of sacrificing his own son, sending his son from the unseen realm to the seen realm to die in our place so that we can come into relationship with him. He's that good. 
Now, the other viewpoint, the other worldview that uh, shapes a person's perspective of life is naturalism, or you could call it secularism. And in this worldview, uh, it maintains that the seen realm is all there is. There is no unseen realm. There is no creator God. It's just the universe. And how the universe got here is a question. And in some respects, um, this viewpoint would, would finds it easier to say that material existence came into being in a way that we don't know. That seems easier to say than to say that a God that we don't know where he came from created it all. And so to, to, to the secularist, this physical realm, the seen realm is all there is. There's no God. There's no creator, no life after death. The universe is all there is. We don't know where it came from, but it's here. And when you die, you're ended. You die. That's it. And so when you look at these two uh, viewpoints, it's important for us to recognize them because we are beset with concepts and ideas and philosophies of life that we're reading about in the newspaper and hearing on the news all the time and watching in television programs all the time. They're coming from one of these two worldviews primarily in our culture. And so, but, but here's the rub. For us as Christians, you could sign off on the dotted line on the Christian worldview uh, and you, you could say, you could sign a doctoral statement that says, I believe all of that, and yet your worldview really doesn't match up with that. And, and so you don't live as if there is a God here who loves you and cares about you. You don't live as if there is life after death. You don't live as if there is absolute truth because your worldview and your actual written belief system might differ. And so a big part of Christian growth and maturing is for us to bring our worldview into alignment and, and to bring our actual surface beliefs into alignment in, in our heart so that we actually have a Christian worldview from which we are responding to life's struggles and, and all the situations we face. And I want to say this. First, I'm just going to talk about three key elements of this. The first one is truth. With a Christian worldview, um, there is truth. We believe that truth comes from God. In the secular worldview, there is no absolute truth because there is no God. And humanity, we as beings, are just here without any direction. And so truth is only what we determine that it is. In the broadest sense, a secularist would say truth is what the culture that you are in says is true. But in the specific sense, it comes down to this very level where people, and you've all heard this, that that might be your truth, but it's not my truth. And, and people will say two co very contradictory truths. Person A holds this truth, person B holds this truth, and they totally contradict each other, but they're both true. And so in the Christian worldview, we believe there is actual truth. It's not your truth and my truth, but there is actual truth. And that because the seen realm originates from the unseen realm, truth originates from the unseen realm. And what we observe here in the seen realm has to, it, it has to be united with what we learn about the unseen realm. Now, 
What that means is we have to have revelation from God because it's the unseen realm. And so uh, most theologians would, would say there are two main types of revelation. One is general revelation, which is this, that you, you look at the, you, you go out on a starry night and you look up into the sky and you see the vastness of space and you say, God is huge. You say, God is so powerful. Look, he created all of this, and he's bigger than all of it, and I can't conceive of this space having any ending, so God must be eternal as well. So there are things you can learn about God. You look at a flower, and you say, you know, only a good person could, could create this beautiful flower. Only someone who loves beauty, only someone who has incredible creativity could create this flower. So you, see, you can see general things about who God is from general revelation, which is what we gain when we just look at the seen realm. But then there's special revelation, which is truth that we wouldn't have arrived at without God actually sending that truth to us. And we get that primarily through the Bible. And we see the Bible reveals the heart of God, reveals truths to us that we really couldn't know otherwise. You, you can't get there philosophically. You might hit on a few things with philosophy, but you're not going to understand the fullness of truth unless you really grasp the truth that's revealed in the Bible. But there's also God just speaking to us. You know, just speaking to us individually or speaking to a group individually and reveal, revealing his will for that group. But this idea that there's general revelation and special revelation that is all rooted in God and in the unseen realm and that then translates into the seen realm and enables us to understand the seen realm. In fact, um, the, the earliest scientists began studying science because they believed the world had been created in an orderly fashion. They believed in a creator, and they believed because there's a creator, the world isn't random, there is order here. And that motivated them to say, well, if there's order here, then and it's God's order, then we need to understand it. And so, of course, now science has become much more secular, generally. There are a lot of believing scientists, don't get me wrong, but the concept of science is normally thought of as something that exists apart from any revelation from the unseen realm. But um, what this further means is, not only do we have to have revelation from God, He opens our eyes to see it. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.18, he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you can see and know the hope and the goodness and the power of God and everything you're called to. And, and so it, it also translates, though, into how we live today and how we make decisions and how, what solutions we find. Because solutions in life that don't incorporate truth from the unseen realm are deficient, and, and they may seem wise, they may seem right, but when you really begin to understand the truth from the unseen realm, you realize, yeah, that, that's really not, that's not a helpful thing. You know, for instance, one main thought that has found favor in recent years and has, has cropped up over the last few centuries, and I'm sure prior to that, is this whole idea of the redistribution of wealth. And, and it's if everybody had an equal amount of wealth, then... Uh, then want would be gone, and fear would be gone, and crime would go down, and everybody would be happy. And, and on the surface, that sounds pretty good. Or even if everyone didn't have an equal amount of wealth, if everyone had what they needed. If we just give everybody all the food they need, and the clothes, and the housing, and everything else. 
And, it's, and, and to the degree that that comes out of just a person's mercy, I understand that. I mean, we want everyone to have what they need. We, we, we don't, I'll, I'll feed anybody. I, I've always said, if a drug dealer's kid is hungry because his parent has chosen the lifestyle they have, I'll still feed that kid because it's not the kid's fault. But the idea that it's, this is going to solve the world's problems is based upon faulty biblical thinking. It, it, it doesn't line up with the revelation from the unseen realm. For one thing, it's saying money is the problem. Yeah, oh, just money will be the solution. Well, when has money ever been the solution? <laughs> you know, we see our government throw billions of dollars at problems and they don't go away. You know, money is not the solution. And, 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 it, and it doesn't also account for the fallenness of the heart of mankind. That even if everyone had exactly the same amount, there would be people that would be saying, hey, I want more. I deserve more. I'm smarter than you. I'm stronger than you. I'm going to take what you have. There would still be people that would do that. And, and further, it, it doesn't account for... Well, the idea that it would end all abuse and addictions and, and, and everything else related to that is, is just flawed. It's just flawed. And so what, what appears on the surface to be a good idea, when you examine it from truth from the unseen realm, you recognize that it might not be such a great idea. I actually had another point there. I can't remember what it was. So uh, here's something Jesus said, though, that I think is really powerful. He said, <laughs> it's probably better than what I was going to say. It says, he said this to the Jews who had believed in him. He said, if you hold to my teaching... My teaching from the unseen realm into this realm, about this realm, how you were created, what you were, what you were made to do. If you believe my teaching, you are truly, if you follow my teaching, you're truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That verse just reminded me of what I was going to say. Man isn't made just to eat, drink, and be merry. If we don't have purpose, we lose self-esteem. If, if just everything's given to us, we, we lose, we lose self-respect and self-esteem. And God created us to go out into the world, to conquer the world, and to subdue the world, and to bless the world. And, and so he created us to have meaning and purpose. And, and so that, that whole solution that comes just around money, uh, again, is not the right solution. But here Jesus says, truth sets you free. Uh, Jerry Hazelmeyer, Luke's father, worked as a consultant for us a couple years ago. And Jerry used to say, when the facts are clear, the solution becomes obvious. Okay, Jesus said, when you know the truth, you're going to be free. Because the truth is going to show you what to do next. And when we understand truth, then the solution is going to be obvious. I, 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 one of my favorite movies is this movie, Gettysburg. And there's a scene, um, an actual factual thing that happened when there's a colonel from Maine, Chamberlain, who's defending Little Round Top. And he is told that he cannot retreat because they are at the end of the line. And if they retreat, then the, the whole army would be outflanked. And so they come to a point in the battle where the Confederates have charged up the hill half a dozen times and then gone back and then making another assault. And Chamberlain and his men are weary, wounded, and out of ammunition. And so there's this very dramatic moment where he stands with his officers, and he says, uh, what are we going to do? We can't retreat, because we've been ordered to stay right here. And he said, we can't stay here, 
because we don't have any ammunition to fight with, they'll, they'll just run right over us. So to him then, the solution was obvious. He said, fix bayonets. And we're going to charge down the hill at them when they come up the hill. And he did it in a way like a door swinging, so they were really outflanking the enemy as the enemy, as the enemy forces came up the hill. They outflanked them by sweeping down from the side like that. But that was the only option. And so truth enabled him to make the right decision. And for you and for me, there are times we face difficulties and decisions, and, and we look at it and we say, well, I can't do that. That's unbiblical. God's already said, don't do that. And this over here is just impractical. I can't do that either. That leaves this. So you know what? We're going to do this, and we're going to trust Jesus. And if it's fixed bayonets and charged down the hill, which makes no sense, that's okay, because Jesus is with us. You get that? Jesus is with us. And so truth is what enables us to make decisions like that and to think that way. The second thing I wanted to talk about was how our worldview impacts the nature of our existence. I've already alluded to this somewhat, but in the secular domain, the secular worldview, it's uh, we exist due to random chance. We just exist due to random chance. There's no purpose or meaning. Uh, there's nothing behind it, no creator. And um, all we are are, are chemical reactions within a physical being that is primarily chemical. And so when, when you look at that, then it, there's a certain sense of, you, of futility to life. And there's no afterlife. So if I'm going to do anything meaningful, and everyone was created to do something meaningful, so even a secularist wants to do something meaningful with their life, but they only have this many years to do it. And they don't realize that, well, no, you're going to do everything that God calls you to do during these years, and then you're going to go on and be with Him for eternity, and there's going to be more. They don't have that view, so that makes it all the more intense to accomplish something during this season of, of, of life, because once I die, I'm gone. Now, the Christian worldview is that we are created by God for a purpose with meaning, and He, he assigned, He gives us meaning. But in that, we were created to interface between the seen realm and the unseen realm. God created us with the ability to interact with the unseen realm. That's why we read in Genesis, and, and Wilson pointed out, Adam and Eve uh, walked with God in the cool of the evening. God from the unseen realm, He revealed Himself in the seen realm and related to them on a regular basis. That's why when the serpent tempted Eve, and serpent means shining one, it can mean fiery serpent, but it, it's, you know, shining one, Something, a being from the unseen realm appears to Eve, she didn't freak out because that was not an unnatural occurrence for them. That we were human beings. You and I were designed with the capacity to relate to the unseen realm, to see the unseen. And when you realize that, then you realize, well, okay, when, when I got saved, it wasn't like God put an addition onto my house. And, and he built a kind of a ramshackle addition onto my house and said, okay, this is your ability to see the unseen. This is your ability to relate to God now. No, all he did was he took that part of our original design and brought it to life. Already there, already there brought it to life through the Holy Spirit coming into us. And so 
it's, it really radically impacts our view of how we relate to this seen world. In fact, for one thing, I want to say this. It means we are not victims. We are never victims. We aren't. You know, there's a story Jesus uh, told. Well, Jesus was involved. He didn't, he, Mark wrote it down. But it says this. They're passing by uh, in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Earlier, Jesus had come to this fig tree, and he'd wanted figs. There are no figs on it. And so he cursed the tree. And as an illustration that we're going to benefit from today. And so the next day, they're coming by, and they see that the tree has been withered from the roots up. Say, from the roots up. Not just the top, but from the roots up. And so the unseen was impacted, and it impacted the scene. And then he goes on, and he says this, uh, you know, Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them, and they will be granted to you. So Jesus takes this, and he says, oh, no, this is a picture of prayer. You need to understand this. And he says, have faith in God. Literally, it means, literally, that should be translated, have, have the faith of God. And that's such a mind-blowing thought that translators just say, well, that doesn't make any sense. We'll just translate it in a way that makes sense. Have faith in God. But to have the faith of God, what, what does God have faith in? You know, what's God's heart? What's God's desire for this situation? You remember last week, Micah shared the illustration of a prayer meeting where there are big angels there. They aren't doing anything while all these people are praying. Then a little girl comes up and prays, and the angels all look at each other, and they take off. And Micah asked one of the angels, why didn't you take off before? And they said, none of them were praying the heart of God. She prayed the heart of God. So that what she prayed released something in the unseen realm to impact the seen realm. And see, this is what we got to understand. Since we were created to interact, to rule over the seen realm, but to interact with and through the unseen realm, we have authority to get to the root of issues. And we see something here in the seen realm, and, and, and it's, not, it's not in alignment with God's kingdom. We can pray directly against that. We can also pray for discernment. What is the root of that? And then we make declarations about the root of that. And when we make declarations about the root of that, it impacts through the unseen realm, it impacts the seen realm. Does that make sense? And so we just need to recognize that... that um, we, he also, he relates declarations and prayer here. Isn't that cool? First, he says, anyone who says to this mountain, like we make a declaration, an offering declaration every week. And when we say, leg, be healed in Jesus' name, that's a declaration. And, and when, uh, when we make that declaration, he's equating it with prayer because then he says, uh, whatever you pray for, you're going to get if you believe it. And, and the way you believe it is not by trying to trying to grunt out more belief or more faith, the way you believe it is by getting in touch with the heart of God so that you have the faith of God, a divine type of faith. Amen. And when you get that, then you say to that mountain, be gone, and it's gone. And you say to that person, be healed, and they are healed. But 
Jesus said our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities and the authorities and the rulers of spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so, look, it's in the heavenly realms, the unseen realm. That's where we target our prayers. And, and then, then the seen realm is impacted. Does that make sense? I hope it does. And Jesus has given us authority over all these powers. Uh, he says, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. So we're confident. We move ahead in our mission with God, and, and we walk in this authority over all the powers of the evil forces in the unseen realm. So third thing is this, death is not the end. Death is not the end. Secularism says, well, you die, you're gone, that's it, nothing. The chemical reaction stopped firing, your consciousness ends, and you just cease to exist. But the Bible teaches something different than that, that life goes on after death, which you know what that means? That means death is not the worst thing in the world. And if I, as a Christian, think death is the worst thing that could happen, then to that degree, I'm holding on to a secular, non-God, non-supernatural worldview. Death is not the worst thing in the world. In fact, in Luke 12, verses 4 through 7, let me read this to you. Luke 12. It's going to take me a moment to find it. You know, this is how I used to do church all the time, just with a Bible and looking things up. But everybody else out there had a Bible in their lap looking something up too, so it wasn't as obvious that I couldn't find the passage. <laughs> He's, Jesus said this, he said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Okay, pretty darn strong statement, isn't it? And, uh, but you know the way he's using fear here in contrast? Because what fear does is something that you fear, you focus on. If you're, afraid, if you're deathly afraid of spiders, then you're always looking for spiders, and if you go into a house that seems like it's not spider-free, you're going to sit down and you're, every little tingle on your skin, you're going to feel there's a spider on you because you focus on what you fear. And so he uses the word fear here in the first sense in, in, in the way we would normally use it. But in the second sense, it's not fear in the sense of be afraid of him because what he says next is this. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? And then he says, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. So he's not saying you should quake in fear uh, when you think of God because he has authority not only to take a life but also to cast someone into hell. He's not saying be afraid of that, but he's saying fear God in the sense that he is the center He's the one you focus your life around. He's the one you submit to and you follow and, and you give yourself to, not someone who can just take your physical life. So Jesus is, is obviously there saying there are worse things than, uh, than death. But fear, again, fear doesn't just take over one area of your life. Fear is like cancer. It spreads. 
And, and if, if you have a, a deep-seated fear that you just can't overcome, then that, op- that opens us up to other fears. And the fear of death is like a primary fear. For the people that don't know Jesus, it's just like a primary foundational fear. In fact, in Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus through death came to destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. His power of death was not to kill people, but his power of death was that he, he, he held us in slavery through the fear of death. That's what it says next. It says, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so we need to really get this down. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. We don't have to fear death. I remember when Wilson went to the Middle East for the first time. He was 19 years old, and a friend of my good friend here from the church took me aside, and he said, how can you let your son do this? What if he's killed? And I said, well, you know, I said, there are people his age that are racing, that are are driving race cars and dying. There are people his age that are free climbing up the sides of cliffs without any ropes or anything else and falling and dying. See, if Wilson wants to go to the Middle East to share the gospel, and if he dies doing that, that, that's not the worst thing in the world. That's not the worst way to spend your life. I mean, the worst way to spend your life is to live 80 years never taking a risk, never trusting God, 90 years just getting, just surviving, and then at the end of it look back and say, oh, I wish that I had trusted God more. I wished I had taken risks. I wish that I had been more bold with my life. And, and so death is not the worst thing. It's not the thing that we should fear. Now, we don't want to die, but the main reason we don't want to die is because we have people here we love. And it's for their welfare. That's what Paul said. He said, he said I'm torn. He said, I want to stay here because I love you all, and I know that if I stay here, I'll be able to teach you and bless you. But there's this strong desire in me also to go be with Jesus. And so the desire to stay is not out of a fear of death. It's out of a love for people and a desire out of a love for God to fulfill my mission. And by the way, um, I I heard this message. Wilson played it in a Sockham a year or so ago. And and this guy said, potential is not what we should be uh, shooting for. You don't want to try to fulfill your potential because that's a dead-end street. You'll never do it. And, and it just causes frustration and anxiety. He even said Jesus didn't fulfill his potential. And then he went on to say what he meant by that. Jesus could have healed everybody in the world. If he had just not gone to the cross, he could have stayed here for 90, 100, maybe 120 years and traveled around the world and healed everybody. But he did fulfill his mission. And so we don't want to focus on fulfilling our potential. We want to focus on fulfilling our mission. And that takes the fear of death away because I'm here to fulfill my mission. And if, if God says my mission is over right now, then so be it. I'm, I'm ready to go. But I want to stay because I sense that it's not over and I love the people around me. So Paul, because of his ability to see the unseen realm, he did not fear death. And here's what he said. He said, our, mom- our light and momentary troubles, my goodness, do you know what his troubles were? He was beaten with rods. He was stoned to death, very likely. He was imprisoned. And he calls them his light and momentary troubles. But he's calling them that because he's comparing them to the glory that he's going to have. 
So he says, my light and momentary troubles are achieving, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So we need to fix our eyes on the unseen, and the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to do that. I haven't had, had many near-death experiences. I mean, I fell off a cliff as a kid. I caught on fire and stuff like that. But I don't think I was ever really close to dying in any of those cases. I guess falling off that cliff, I could have hit my head on a rock. But um, in South Bend in 1986, I, I was doing some substitute teaching. I was pastoring a church there and just to make a little extra money. And on a Friday afternoon, I picked up a stack of papers the regular teacher had left there, and I punctured this finger with a staple. That was Friday afternoon, probably 2 or 3 o'clock. And that night, my finger started to get sore. The next morning, we were at a soccer game, watching the soccer game, and it really started to hurt and throb. And I said to Lori, I think I'm going to drive down to the quick med place here and um, see if they want to give me an antibiotic for this. It was only about two miles away. But literally, by the time I got there, I, I could barely walk. This infection was so uh, virile and so powerful that I literally stumbled into the place. And they panicked. And they put me on a gurney. And <clears throat> one of the nurses tried to take my pulse. And she yelled, his heart's beating so fast, I can't find his pulse. Now, I still had my head about me, and I thought, no, wait a second. If my heart was beating that fast, I'd be passed out right now. It's her heart that's beating too fast. <laughs> and so they put me in an ambulance and are taking me to the hospital. And I just, there was, I could sense there's something deeply, deeply wrong right now. And I just thought to myself, I'm dying. And, and I was. I was in the process of dying with this infection. If they hadn't given me, I was on intravenous antibiotics for four or five days. I was in the hospital for seven days. If they hadn't given that to me, I would have been dead within a day. And so I'm in the ambulance thinking I'm dying. And my first thought was, well, what about Lori and the kids? And Wilson wasn't around yet. But um, what about Lori and the kids? And I guess I should have been thinking, and any other children we would have in the future? <laughs> But uh, <clears throat> I was worried, and I don't know if it was God speaking to me or just wisdom or whatever, but I just thought, no, wait a second, Jesus will be with them, so they'll be okay. And so all the fear just drained, and I was it was okay. I just leaned back and rested, and they took care of me, and obviously I didn't die. So uh, <laughs> Jesus is going to be with you no matter what you face. He's going to be with you. Now, I faced another time in 2009 that was a little different story. Uh, I had MRSA in 1986, if you've ever heard of that. Um, it's a very strong uh, bacterial infection. 2009, I got MRSA again. Think of that, who gets MRSA twice in one lifetime? But um, it was, I got it in Guatemala from a guy that we prayed for, and I hesitated to lay hands on him, but I did. And then for the next two hours, I kept telling myself, don't touch your nose, your eyes, or your mouth. And apparently, I was not able to do that for the amount of time we were there. And I came back, and I was just exhausted all the time. And they tested me and said I had MRSA. So that took me out for a full month, just staying home watching Law & Order. I saw all the Law & Orders ever, ever produced. And um, a couple of other things happened that year, 2009. A good friend of mine 
having serious marital problems that weighed on me. Had issues in the church, a couple of other, a couple of staff issues in the church that um, that were heavy and weighty and took a lot of energy and a lot of life. One of them became public, and we lost a couple hundred people over it as a church. But um, then I had I had to have surgery, and it was a simple surgery. It was an outpatient surgery. But um, did you ever hear the joke about the baseball pitcher? who was doing a press release or press announcement, and he told them he was going to have major surgery. And they said, what is it? He said, I'm going to have a bone spur removed from my elbow. And they said, well, what makes that major surgery? And he said, it's my elbow. So uh, it was minor surgery, but it was my surgery. And um, I had given into a fear of failure during that season. And I think that opened me up to other fear attack. And here's the thing, when you give in to one area of fear, it doesn't stay there. And so with this surgery coming up, I had an irrational fear that I was going to die. And it was just like a dread that I had. And um, I've, it was just, just overwhelming. Now, because I also had embraced the fear of failure, I didn't feel like I could tell anybody that I, the pastor, was afraid I was going to die. And so I kept it to myself, which was a mistake. You, if you're facing something like that, you've got to have the courage. And to me, it, wasn't, it was just a lack of courage. You've got to have the courage to find someone and just sit down, tell them what you're struggling with, let them help you find what's at the root of it so you can repent of that. Let them pray for you to be free to whatever spiritual attack's going on. But for me, I just gutted it out. Um, I had the surgery because it was the right thing to do, and I didn't die. So yippee, I'm still here. <laughs> but that, that can be overwhelming. And if anybody, anybody is facing that type of fear, I just want to say, you got to break that. you got to fight that. you got to resist that. You, you have to say, you have to find somebody. Don't do what I did. I did the wrong thing in that case. My pride kept me from sharing it with anyone. You've got to find someone. You, and there were people around I trusted that I could have shared it with. You've got to find someone that you trust. You've got to tell them what you're experiencing. Someone that can listen well. Someone that will help you to identify what's at the root of this. So that you can repent of those wrong beliefs. And, and they can pray for you to be freed from the spiritual attack that you're under. And so as we move ahead in upcoming weeks... Um, there are going to be a lot of people in our culture that are going to need to experience freedom from a, a debilitating fear that has gripped their lives. And I, I want to pray for us all here and everyone listening right now to be freed from that. But uh, we even as a staff are in the process of taking a couple days of preparation for how to deal with these types of things because there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be need to need, have the need to be set free from these things. And so uh, let's pray together to end our service. Father, we're thankful that, that you are there. We're not on our own, that you are alive, that you're good, that you love us, that you've given us authority through your son Jesus over all the powers of darkness, 
over fear itself, over the fear of death itself. It has no grip on us any longer. And I just pray that right now for anyone listening that is struggling with a fear of death, I pray for release and freedom from that right now. In Jesus' name, be free of that. Walk in freedom. And Father, prepare us as a church body that we will, we will be prepared to welcome people uh, without judgment, uh, without any, 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 any type of recrimination, just we'll be free to welcome people into a healing atmosphere where they can be set free of struggles with, particularly with fear. And Father, every person listening, bless them with joy. God's desire is not that we live in fear, but that we live in, in his joy. The kingdom of God does not exist of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, being right with God, peace and joy. So I pray that blessing of righteousness, peace and joy on you now in Jesus' name, amen. And we also had this strong sense, there was a word during the service, that God's releasing a sense of mission to people mm, mm. and um, clarifying calling, yeah. but just instilling deeply in people their mission. So we just wanna pray that too, Father, yes. We um, receive that we're here for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we just say, just say this out loud, I am on mission. I am on mission. So Father, I pray you'd release um, a sense of purpose over people right now who struggle with that. And for everyone, just have an upgrade and awareness of mission. Mm -hmm. That we wouldn't be obsessed with potential, we'd be obsessed with obedience. Mm -hmm. Make us a people That's obsessed right. with obedience yep, towards Lord. Jesus. Yep, In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, Will. All right, we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us.